Today's scripture reading comes to us from Galatians 2, chapter uh, 2, verse 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before them, who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom and that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and for those who seemed to be influential. What they were makes what they what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentile and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. One more time, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Father, you made the promise through your son that when two or more are gathered under his name, that your presence would be among us in a way that we could never capture or acquire on our own. And so, Father, as we gather together in this corporate worship setting, speak to your people. And Lord, we also pray that you would speak to those who are seeking after truth, those who are seeking after relief, those who are seeking after you. God, we come to you hungering and thirsting for hope and for renewal. And we now pray that you will do that through the promise in Jesus' name we ask. Amen and amen. You know, more and more recent studies are telling us that Christianity is declining in America. Pew poll after pew poll are telling us that more and more Americans who years ago identify themselves as devout Christians are now saying at this current time that they no longer walk the faith, they no longer follow Jesus, that they have essentially left, they have abandoned the faith that they have called their own, namely the Christian one. And as a result, many people are saying that this is proof of the irrelevance of the evolving nature of the world of Christianity, that Christianity is no longer relevant to this changing world that we live in. And furthermore, they'll say that is further evidence that Christianity is not a true faith. Now, for those of you who were here two weeks ago where I stood in this very place, you would remember in that message that I preached that the Bible clearly says that just because something is not universally recognized, just because something is not popular, doesn't necessarily mean that it is not true. Just because something isn't universally recognized and it's not popular doesn't mean it's not true. And therefore, as Christians, we should not land on this idea that just because Christianity is seemingly no longer relevant or seemingly no longer uh, popular, that therefore our faith is not true. And as a result, we therefore ask, in light of today's 
message. How would the Bible understand or interpret this decline of Christianity in America? Well, I would contend that the Bible would simply repeat back to us what the Apostle John once said that's recorded for us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where he wrote this. These people left our churches because they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. According to the Bible, the loss of faith is not the loss of genuine faith, but instead it is the loss of a false faith, which tells us that since the beginning of the church, since the current status of the church and the future of the church, there will be many within its folds that will genuinely think that they are true believers when in fact they are far from it. And because that is so, you will find as you read the scriptures, countless and countless of teachings that are always trying to help us understand the characteristics of true faith. In the hopes that as you read and study these words, you would do what Paul commands in the book of Philippians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so as we come to find in the first 10 verses of Genesis, excuse me, not Genesis, Galatians 2, the apostle Paul, under the divine inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, he is going to tell us in his own words what he believes are characteristics of true, genuine faith. And as we take a look at these 10 verses, he's going to tell us, Three things that we need to be aware of. Number one, first, he says, true faith is public, it's not private. True faith, first of all, it's public, it's not private. Number two, true faith is collaborative, not competitive. Collaborative, not competitive. And finally, true faith shows not the Bible, it shows the gospel. That's a typo. I apologize. True faith shows the gospel. Okay, let's jump right in with the first idea. True faith is public, not private. In his New York Times bestselling book, Christian author Donald Miller writes in Blue Light Jazz the following words, quote, Before I lived in community, I thought faith, mine being Christian faith, was something a person did alone, like monks in caves. I thought the backbone of faith was time alone with God, time reading ancient texts and meditating on poetry or the precepts of natural law. It seems that way in books. I had read a Christian book about the betterment of self, the actualization of the individual in the personal journey towards God. It was all stuff you did in a quiet room. I hadn't seen a single book that addressed a group of people or a community with advice about faith. When I walked into the Christian section of a bookstore, the message was clear. Faith is something you do alone, end quote. According to Miller, as well as the countless of Christian books that he surveyed, a recurring message that so many Christians truly believe is fact is that Christianity is something that you do alone. It is something that you keep to yourself. In other words, it is a private faith. And I'm willing to bet that some of us, if not all of us in this room, have bought in to this idea that our faith is a private faith. So many of us are very private when it comes to our Christianity. And when I say private, I don't mean private amongst non-Christians. I actually mean private amongst other Christians. Oh, I know right now we're all gathered in this context and all of you are participating in a very public activity. I'll concede that when Christians gather together like we are right now and doing this thing known as corporate Sunday worship, yes, we are all participating in a public activity. But let's be honest. How many of us in here really live out our faith publicly? And I don't mean act out our faith publicly, but really live it out. I mean, just think about the relationships that you have with the people that you do Sunday with. What would be the best description on how that relationship is defined? 
Is it a Sunday friendship or is it a Christian friendship? And what I mean by that is, is the common connection between you and the people that you do Sunday with, is it simply the activity alone that you do on Sunday or is it the faith that compels you to come together on Sunday? Are they Sunday friends or are they Christian friends? If we were sober and honest in our self-assessment, I think many of us would have to confess. Most of our interactions and relationships in the church, as well as in the history of our time in the church, is that we tend to have more Sunday friends, where the common connection between me and my fellow brother and sister in Christ are commonalities that you could share with those outside of the church, right? Like common interests common stage of life, common struggles, common cultural background, common ethnicity, and yet so few of us connect with one another with our common faith. And the Apostle Paul would say that is uncharacteristic of true faith. For consider again what he says in our passage, starting in verse 1, where he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me notice how paul identifies two individuals who he took with him in his journey towards jerusalem barnabas and titus now for those of you who are not very familiar with the stories of the bible these two names may seem somewhat arbitrary and therefore pointless but as i hope to show you in a moment these two names are very intentional and paul is making a very explicit point in naming these two individuals let me show you why by first focusing on barnabas according to the book of acts Barnabas was one of the early leaders of the influential Jerusalem church. But perhaps what is the greatest note of fame to him is that Barnabas was actually the mentor of the apostle Paul. In other words, you could argue Barnabas was the man who helped establish Paul so that he could eventually become the greatest missionary and theologian as we now know of him today. Consider what it says in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 26, we read, When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Just to give you a little context here, before the apostle Paul converted to christian faith he went around calling himself by his hebrew name saul saul and the reason why is because saul was a very proud jew in fact he was so proud that it compelled him to persecute people of the christian faith which explains why christians were very timid to be around him even though he claimed to be now one of them and you can see the sticky situation that paul was in people are doubting they're denying that this man truly had a vision of god And as a result, they feel that they cannot believe him. And so clearly, he needs someone to vouch for him, someone to validate him, someone of renown, someone of clout, someone who is part of the leadership establishment who can verify and therefore confirm Paul's new identity. And that man was none other than Barnabas. Barnabas was there for Paul when no one else would be, and thank God that he was. Because it was single-handedly the validation and encouragement and vindication of Barnabas that now allowed Paul to fulfill his ministry that further allowed him to become the great apostle that we have all been beneficiary of today. 
Now, with Barnabas established, now let's consider the second individual that Paul identifies who went with him to Jerusalem, a man by the name of Titus. Now, who was Titus? Well, according to the letter that bears his name, Titus was a convert of Paul. But he wasn't just any convert. He was a personal disciple of Paul, a man who had a personal relationship, evidenced by the fact to how Paul addressed him in verse 4 of chapter 1 of the book of Titus. Listen to how Paul refers to this man. My true son in the faith we share. Now, what are those words? Those are words of affection. Those are words of intimacy. But do you know what else those words are? They are words of need. See, Paul is not being cheesy or sentimental by calling Titus his quote-unquote son. He is actually describing the nature of his relationship to Titus. And it's a relationship that is identical to a father's relationship to a son. And what is the central characteristic between a father and a son in terms of their relationship? It's simple. It's a relationship of need. Just like a son needs his father... Titus needed Paul. And when you understand that, now you begin to see the commonality in the relationship between Barnabas and Paul and Paul and Titus. What is the common factor in these two relationships all singled on Paul? You know what it is? Dependency. Paul depended on Barnabas in order for him to live out his faith. Titus depended on Paul to live out his faith. And when you come to that awareness, now you begin to understand why so many Christians, especially New York Christians, have a hard time of living out their faith publicly. Because if there is one thing we New Yorkers do not like, it's having to depend on anything or anyone. We live in a city that is constantly preaching us a message that says you should not depend on anyone but yourself to where the only thing that you stand on are your skills, your savvy, and your talent so that you could ultimately boast in yourself. And Christian, sad to say, so many of us have bought into this message. So many of us have accepted it as gospel truth. And as a result, we're trying to live this life of Miss Independent, Mr. Independent in all categories of our life, whether it's our work life, our family life, and tragically, even in our Christian life. Many of you do not realize how much you have been influenced by the world rather than by the word of God. Now, before any of you even attempt to deny this, consider five characteristics that a pastor by the name, what's his name, of Robert Thune gives us that he says are characteristics of what he refers to as self-worshipping independence or self-worshipping individualism. He says this, characteristics of five No, oh Lord, please don't tell me. Oh, I depend on you, Jess. I depend on you. Uh, Look at these five characteristics of self-worshipping individualism, which is essentially what I'm referring to today. First, he talks about self-reliance, where you are proud of your ability to deal with your own problems and challenges without help from others. You enjoy being asked for help, but you are rarely asking others for help. Self-sufficiency. You may be thought of as a good Christian by others, but few people know who you really are. Very few people have full access to your life. You may disclose things to people, but only what you want them to know. Self-protection. You tend to keep others at arm's length to guard against being hurt or rejected. You fear at times if people knew the real you, they would keep their distance. 
self-importance. You tend to be addicted to busyness. It's the way you fill the void of deep relationships in your life. You have a high concern for respect from others, and you have a sense of responsibility for others. Self-will. You regularly choose work and hobbies over people. When it comes to church, you tend to ask consumer-oriented questions like, what do I like, not like? How does this make me feel? What do I get out of this? You want Your wants and goals are functionally prioritized over the needs of the community and the mission of the church. These are five characteristics that this pastor tells us is indicative of the kind of privatized faith that is so prevalent in the church in America today. And if any of these characteristics are congruent with, with the way that your Christian faith functions, there is a possibility, a strong possibility, that your faith may not be a true faith. Because one of the things that a true faith is, it is not a privatized, isolated, me and myself and I faith, where you just keep to yourself, where you don't want to be open, you don't want to be public, and therefore you don't want to be dependent on anyone to help you grow, to help you know, to help you become the person that God calls you to be in the context of the church. So that's the first characteristic of true faith. It's not a, I'm alone on my own, it's just me and Jesus. No, it is a public faith. It is a faith that is out, that is open, that is sharing, that is dependent, so that it's a faith that is true. Now let's consider the second characteristic Paul says is indicative of a true faith, and that is true faith is collaborative, it is not competitive. Read again our passage with me, starting in verse 2. It goes, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, that gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Here's the situation. Paul is giving reason to why he is going to Jerusalem. And if you were here in the last two sermon series on Galatians, you would recognize what that reason is. False teachers, or as he puts it here, false brothers. But just to recap for those who are visiting for the first time, false teachers have infiltrated a bunch of churches that Paul started in the city of Galatia. And their main reason to why they were against Paul is because in their mind, Paul's version of Christianity was not kosher. Literally, it was not kosher. Because these false teachers firmly believe that because Christianity comes from Jewish roots, and because it is the Jewish God, Yahweh, who became man into the world to save the world, Jesus Christ, that therefore true Christian faith is inseparably Jewish. So that in their mind, Christians today, devout Christians, must still live out all the precepts, follow all the laws, and go with all the customs of Judaism as it's prescribed in the Old Testament. But if you remember the first sermon that I preached in the Galatians series, you would remember that Paul says, Christianity, it's not simply a Jewish faith. It's a global faith. It's an international faith. 
mainly because, yes, though the God of the Bible is the God of the Jews, he also happens to be the God of everyone else. In fact, God himself states that is so in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. Consider what he says in his own words in Isaiah 43, verse 10 through 11. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. See, Paul is in opposition to these false teachers because he's in opposition to what they're trying to promote. Namely, that in order to be a true, devout Christian, you had to be a Jew. Paul says, no, 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 absolutely not. You do not need Judaism to be a Christian. You do not need Judaism to know God. You just need Jesus to know God. Again, you don't need Judaism to know God. You just need Jesus to know God. And hence, for that reason, he went to Jerusalem. Because as far as Paul was concerned, he felt there was no better way to get validated on his understanding of Christianity than by getting confirmation from those who at that time were considered the most influential and the most authoritative in all of Christianity, the original disciples of Jesus and, oh, all who happened to be Jews. If there was anyone who could have validated these false teachers and their perspective of Christianity, it would have been these guys, and yet we come to find that they do not validate these false teachers at all, but instead they validate Paul. And this is evidenced by the fact in their official letter that they send to the churches in Galatia that's recorded for us in Acts 15. Read again what it says there, or read for the first time what it says there. This is their official letter to the people that Paul ministered to in Galatia. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than the few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consumed blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Notice, no reference to Jewish laws, to Jewish customs, to Jewish traditions, like getting circumcised and so forth. Why? Well, in a nutshell, because these false teachers were wrong and Paul was right. The false teachers were wrong, and Paul was right. And while we're on the subject of these false teachers being wrong and Paul being right, notice how different they behaved. The difference between how these false teachers behave and how Paul behaved. We just saw, we just read how Paul went to Jerusalem to get confirmation with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. That is, he sought collaboration on this particular issue that was creating disunity and disruption in the church, right? But read again what the leaders of the Jerusalem church says about these false teachers that came into the church in verse 15. Excuse me, verse 24. What what do they say about them? He says, we did not send them. We have no association with them. We don't even know who they are. Turns out, unlike Paul, these false teachers never collaborated with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And if you read again what Paul says about these guys in our passage in verse 4, it's easy to figure out why that is so. 
Read again what it says. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. These false teachers are doing some very sneaky things. They're spying around, being all secretive. In many ways, these false teachers are behaving like companies who engage in corporate espionage. Corporate espionage. You guys know what corporate espionage is? Where a a person in one company spies out pretending to be an employee of another so they can get trademark secrets and products and so forth, right? And why do these people do that? Why do they do such unethical things? Because of one reason. Competition. Competition. Now, we say in our culture today that competition is a good thing. It's a characteristic of a healthy, thriving economy. But the scriptures would say that competition in Christianity is a deadly faith. Because there is nothing that will kill a collaborative spirit more than a competitive spirit. And when you kill collaboration... Because of competition, it results in you not being able to do what the people wanted Paul to do in verse 10 of our passage. What did they ask? Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You know, one of the frequent criticisms that people give towards Christians is that our religion is inherently selfish. People who think this way will say something to the effect of, wait a minute, you Christians, you believe that If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. And that's why you want me to believe in Jesus so I don't go to hell. And we might say, yes. And they retort, well, that's selfish. You're telling me that the only reason why a person should be a Christian is because they're only interested in their own self-preservation. And I don't know about you, man, but if I have to take the first step into a faith where the primary concern is just me, I just feel like that's a pathway of major self-absorption. That's a common criticism that we hear sometimes. And you know what? There's some validity to that. If you ask a fellow Christian, hey, Christian, why do you believe in Jesus? And they simply say, well, it's because I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to suffer for all eternity and fire and brimstone. How does that not sound like something like the only reason why a husband is nice to his wife is because he doesn't want to sleep on the couch or he doesn't want to have like a stale, tasteless dinner? It just sounds so selfish, so self-absorbed, so self-motivated. See, this is why we need to understand this concept of collaboration. Because what Paul is trying to say by saying that true faith is by nature collaborative, not competitive, he's trying to make the point. That true Christian faith at its core, it's not self-motivated, it's not self-focused, and it's not primarily for self-interest. The nature of true faith is primarily concerned for others, specifically for the problems of others like the poor. And we all know that when we work for the poor, that's a complicated problem which necessitates the need of other people, right? Collaboration is needed. You see, when Scripture tells us, through Paul, that collaboration is the essence of true faith, it's assuming something about true faith. And that is that you value something so much, you're willing to collaborate for it. Because that is the essence of true faith. The essence of true faith is not for your own interest, not for your own safety, not for your own comfort, to where the only thing that you're primarily concerned is just your own skin. No, true faith, Paul says, is primarily concerned 
with the needs of others, even needs that you cannot fix on your own. Therefore, because you value this need being met, I will collaborate. I will come together. But conversely, if you have such a competitive spirit, you'll never collaborate. And because you'll never collaborate, you'll never be able to see how problems like poverty can be alleviated. And you'll just say, oh, well, not my problem. I can't handle it. So it's not a priority. You see, that is not the mark of true faith, Paul says. It is the mark of a false one. So there you have it. The second characteristic of true faith. It is collaborative by nature, not competitive. But this leads us to the final characteristic that Paul wants us to understand of what true Christian faith is. And this leads me to my final point. True faith shows the gospel. Read again verse 7 to 9, where we read, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for the for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, just from a casual reading of this, it's obvious that Paul did not really know the original disciples of Jesus. He was not familiar. He was not on friendly terms with these guys. He wasn't hostile towards them, but he didn't know them. In fact, if you remember from last uh a couple weeks ago, the sermon in the first series in this Galatians uh, sermon series, we noticed that the moment he got converted, he went away for many, many years. And it isn't until 14 years later, according to verse 1, that he finally meets Peter, Cephas, John, and James. Okay? And so with that kind of relational detachment and unfamiliarity, you wonder how in the world could these leaders, these influencers, have validated Paul when they knew nothing of him? You know Why? It's because of one thing. They saw in Paul's understanding of the faith that it was very identical to their understanding of the faith. It was the gospel. The gospel. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says that the only true God, who is mysteriously made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, this God is the only being in all of reality who is completely, perfectly independent completely perfectly independent okay he is self-sufficient meaning he does not need anyone for anything he is self-reliant meaning he only relies on himself to do whatever he wants whenever he wants he is self-protected meaning no one and nothing can harm him or challenge him in any way he is self-important meaning there is no one more important than he is he is self-willed meaning the only will and desire that he is governed by is his own will and desire nothing and no one can change his mind this is our god god is all these things and yet the gospel tells us that a person within this perfect, independent God, God the Son, came into the world as Jesus Christ. He came into the world to become the most dependent person. He came into the world in the most dependent form possible. He came as a baby, relinquishing any sense of self-sufficiency. He came living as a Jew under Roman occupation at the time, leaving behind any sense of self-reliance. He grew up poor and unknown in an obscure town of Nazareth, leaving behind any sense of self-importance. He was arrested under false charges, beaten, tortured, losing any sense of self-protection. And then, of course, finally, he was humiliated 
hung naked on the cross in front of mockers and jeers, leaving behind any sense of self-will. Now, why did God do all of this? He did all of this for you. He did all of this out of his love for you. And if you believe this is how much that our God has loved you, our God has favored you, that will change you. That will absolutely change you. Do you know how it will change you? It will change you into becoming a collaborative person. It will change you from no longer being a competitive guy or gal into a collaborative person, a collaborative partner. You know, one of the things overly competitive people say when they're approached by other people, challenging them to be concerned for others, you know what they'll typically say? They'll typically say something like, well, what has anyone ever done for me? Right? You ever talk to a very competitive, ego-driven kind of guy or person, and you say, hey, shouldn't you be more concerned for others? Typically, they'll be like, what has anyone ever done for me? Or Janet Jackson once sang in the 80s, what have you done for me lately? Right? Okay, never mind. All you young people don't even know who Janet Jackson is. Right? Now, what people are saying by that statement is two things. First of all, they're saying, I shouldn't be concerned with anyone else because no one has shown any concern for me. And because no one has shown concern for me, number two, I had no one else to turn to put to me, so I had to develop a competitive spirit where I was finally able to get what no one would give me. So why should I collaborate to help others that takes away my time and getting more for myself when other people can do that for themselves? I did it. Why can't they? That's the competitive mindset. And when you are confronted with the gospel, you can no longer say that. You can no longer say those things because those two reasons go out the window once you understand and once you believe the gospel. Because first of all, God showed concern for you when he did not have to show concern for you because of your sins. Let's admit it. All of us in here have done things, have thought things, have desired things that are so wicked, that are so perverted, that are so greedy, that is so self-absorbed. That we know, we, we have no right to expect anyone to give us anything, to show any concern for us, let alone the most holy, awesome, glorious God. And yet the gospel says, God did for you what he should not have had done for you. He came into the world as your savior substitute, dying on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future. That's what he did. He showed concern for you. And because he did so, it resulted in him accomplishing something you could never acquire, no matter how competitive you think you are. He restored your status as a beloved child of God. No amount of education, no amount of muscle mass, no amount of talent, no amount of savviness, no amount of gregariousness that you use as categories of competition could ever get you to a point where God would say, I favor you. And yet that is what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, for me, for the world. If they would just take it in faith. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that humbles you because you know you don't deserve to be a recipient of such loving concern. And because that's true, you know what that means, Christian? It means as a follower of Jesus, there are certain things that you can never, ever say. 
coming out of your mouth or coming out of your heart. You know one thing you can never say? You can never ask the question, what has anyone ever done for me? Why should I help anyone else? Because what has anyone ever done for me? If you are a recipient of the greatest gift known as the gospel, you can never say that. And because you can never say that, conversely that means you should always be thinking, you should always be hoping, and you should always attempt to consider how you can be a blessing to others. How you can work and collaborate with others so that you can fulfill the responsibility that God has given to us because of what he has done for us. You should be concerned for those around you, especially the poor, especially the broken, especially the forgotten and the forsaken. If you want to know what the essence of true faith is, that's what it is. Our faith is not a faith that's only consumed about our own safety, our own paradise, our own eternal life. No, the essence of Christian faith is that we are concerned for others because our great God was concerned for us in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, help us to understand what the essence of true faith is. Lord, we are constantly being told that our faith is diminishing, it's declining, and therefore it must not be true. But instead, Father, we pray that we would hear the other narrative of what your servant Paul has taught us today, that true faith is truly about others. It is not about ourselves. That true faith is concerned for others. It is not competitive. That true faith is really for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. Lord, these are things that we so easily forget, and we pray, Father, that moving forward, we would not live our lives in such privatized, isolated, silo-like living, but instead we will live publicly because of the lavish love that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. Father, help us to live out this conviction each day so when the world truly sees our faith being lived out, they will recognize it for what it is. It is truly indeed the one true faith. Help us to remember this and help us to live it out, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.